Well, if you have your Bibles, and we certainly hope you do, will you please turn in them to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, if you will. Book of Ephesians chapter 5. All right. Now let's begin reading in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let not even be named among you as it is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. A pastor asked me asked again this week, and as I was listening to him, I was reminded of this question. It's a very simple question, but it's profound in its scope. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? Could the prosecutor come before the jury and adequately list each and every one of the characteristics and conduct that you have manifested and displayed in your life that truly correlate with Jesus Christ? Again, would that jury have enough evidence to convict you as a Christian? The book of Ephesians is one of the most extraordinary New Testament books. Part of that extraordinary nature of the the book of Ephesians is the fact that the first three chapters, Paul reminds us of the theological reality in which we live in, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're reminded of all the blessings that we have been provided in heavenly places in and through Christ. He then goes on to display and remind us of the incredible grace of God that we were shown by Jesus Christ, that we did nothing to earn or to merit, but it was simply given to us. And then as we come to chapter 4, we are met with this verse. If you turn with me in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We were called in Christ. That calling 
that new life that Christ has provided for us comes with the responsibility of living in accordance to that new life. Again, reflecting the characteristic and glorifying our Heavenly Father by those things that we do. Paul, writing to a Gentile community, of course, what that means for us today is that the Gentile community did not grow up with the heritage of Judaism, the traditions of Judaism, the understanding that the Jewish people had. So Paul begins to detail and outline for us what it means to walk worthy. He begins to display very clearly and practically what it looks like to honor God with our life. And as a result, he gets very detailed in his description to the individuals in whom he is writing to, as we find that he does here in chapter 5. Now, we as Christians today, we are confronted by a reality that they too were confronted by in their day, that the biblical standard of morality and ethics is nowhere near parallel the uh, understanding of ethics and morality in the society in which we occupy. I don't think I have to make a strong case to prove that to you, do I? We as Christians need to live separate, not in an era of self-righteousness, but always in humility, governed by love. But we do have a responsibility as Christians to walk according to the new life in which God has given us, that we may bring glory and honor to Him through our lives. Well, as you know, it's getting harder and harder to do that, isn't it? You know, we're being threatened in many different ways, you know. We're being threatened of that, you know, that... Uh, eternal position of being canceled. Well, they can keep canceling me all they want, you know, because when it's all said and done, all that is going to matter is standing before our Lord, knowing that we we handled our new life responsibly as Christians. Everything we do as, as Christians is a reaction to what God has already done for us. You think about when John wrote, he said, You know, the reason we love God is because He first loved us, right? He's always the initiator. He's the one that always begins the process. In the Old Testament, as we've said before, God said, if you do these things, then I will bless you. But in the New Testament, God says, I have blessed you with all of these blessings found in heavenly places through Christ Jesus. Now obey me and do so out of the fundamental characteristic and cornerstone trait of Christianity love. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 5 this morning, where we are called to be imitators of God, one who mimics, seeing that our actions, our conduct, our character reflect upon our Heavenly Father. This is a concept that we aren't nearly as familiar with today as they were as Jewish people, knowing that the sons and daughters of a, uh, a man and a woman uh, were looked upon and what the people saw in the children reflected greatly upon the parents. And so Paul is calling us to reflect properly upon our Heavenly Father. Let people see Him in and through you. Let, him, let them see Him in us through the manner in which we conduct our lives. We are to imitate Him, mimic Him, 
as we grow in our Christian faith, we learn and understand the heart of God. We discover quickly that theology is based upon the character of God, specifically that of ethics and morality. Anything that is uh, the opposite of his character is sin. And so we and I, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ must be aware of his character throughout the word and therefore reflect his mind, his heart, his character here and now on this earth in the community and in the culture in which we live. Now to do so, God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has given us his word that not only uh, instructs us but illuminates our understanding of who God is. And so it isn't surprising to me that Paul in verse 2 then begins with the cornerstone characteristic of a Christian, and that is love. He says, now walk in love or live in love or walk according to love would all be acceptable translations. As Christ also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In the book of Leviticus, various offerings were given to God that offered an aroma. It represented the, the sweet and acceptable uh, sacrifice in which it was unto God. And so our lives, our conduct can resemble just that. We can worship God and be pleasing to Him by the manner in which we conduct ourselves, just as we can be displeasing if we choose to disobey Him. But this is what Paul is referring to. Now notice with me, if you will, that he makes a, a very distinct characteristic of the love in which he is speaking of. And he references Christ. When Jesus adopted, I should say, the word agape, and let me share with you what I mean by that, it was a word of obscurity in the Greek language at that time. When people used the word agape outside of Christianity, Many different definitions were assigned to it. But Jesus took this obscure word and he adopted it and used it and he declared that the definition that he was applying it to it, that of selflessness, that of uh, unconditional uh, love, he therefore then coins this, adopts this Greek word and uses it to express the love that we as Christians should show one another. Now, this love is unique. It is a work of the Spirit that is within us. And He sets the standard from the beginning that we are to love, we are to walk in love just as Jesus did. Now again, the cornerstone of the Christian faith would be found in, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And from that, love your neighbor as yourself. But then John went on to say and to clarify even further, he said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friend. And this is the type of selfless love that Jesus is displaying for us, that Paul is referring to, and that we need to show one another to demonstrate that we are truly new creations in Christ for the purpose of glorifying our Father here on this earth. Now, someone reading this would most likely uh, sense the contrast to that, the opposite of it. So Paul, immediately after sharing what the love is and the standard that we should seek to fulfill, he immediately then goes and tells us what love is not. 
The love of Christianity is selfless. So much of the love that we find in this world, I think that we could honestly call selfish. And notice what he says here in verse 3. He immediately moves to this interesting segue into, but fornication. Well, this is interesting. He's talking about sexual sin. Sin before, or sex before marriage, outside the context of marriage. And then he moves to uncleanness, which again is a mind perverted sexually. And then covetousness, someone who lusts after something with great intensity. Let not even be named among you that is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, and this filthiness is again the perversion that leads to foolish talking and coarse gesturing which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. For know this, that you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, the covetousness, again, a key ingredient to the identifying of the sin of idolatry in the life of an individual, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. It is interesting that if the expression of love is best demonstrated in the secular culture of that time through sex, that is something we can certainly relate to today. Today, our culture is convinced that the highest form of love that can be shown between two people is sex. But I believe that there's an intimacy between husband and wife that is much greater than even physical intimacy between two people, even though that is part of, of course, the marriage relationship that we enjoy. But the intimacy between a married couple who both follow Jesus Christ is found in the triune fellowship between each individual and Christ himself. I think one of the most intimate acts that a married couple can enter into is prayer praying with one another, encouraging one another in the Word of God, laying down each other's life for the other. This demonstrates love more superiorly than anything that physical intimacy alone can provide and produce. Today our world runs after sex. Of course, we are so sexually charged in this culture, you can't go anywhere or do anything without some kind of reminder of a key component of our society and in our culture, can you? You can't even drive down the expressways without finding signs for adult bookstores or the latest, you know, lingerie store, etc. And you're like, really? I'm not even up yet. I'm just driving to work and I'm already getting bombarded with these things. It's everywhere. But Paul the Apostle, after displaying or demonstrating for them what love is in the person of Jesus Christ, he quickly then turns to what love is not. So one reading this who may be a new believer in Christ and understanding that love isn't expressed in this way, we know that in the Gentile world, there in Corinth, the pagan gods were worshipped by sexual acts outside of a marriage relationship. We know that the goddess Diana that occupies the city of Ephesus also was worshipped by those who worshipped her in that manner. Paul's saying this does not resemble love. 
And this is why he took such painstaking uh, steps to define love in 1 Corinthians 13, which I believe is not a verbal definition of a mere emotion, but it's an actual description of the one who demonstrated perfect love to us, the person of Jesus Christ. So our example of love always is Jesus. Our example for everything is Jesus. We can't get around that, and we shouldn't try. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that we as Christians should not be involved in these sexual immoralities as the Gentile world is. I am growing ever so concerned about the number of Christians who identify with a move within Christianity called progressive Christianity who believe that the moral standards of Scripture are no longer for us today. The number of Christians entering into, uh, who are dating, entering into sexual relationships before marriage, the number of Christians who get engaged and then move in together before getting married, these are all things that displease the Lord. And Paul warns us of these things. You know, just because you have the intent to marry somebody doesn't mean that you've married them yet. You do not have access to that element of the relationship yet until you go before God and commit each other to Him in the covenant in which He created, the covenant of marriage. But as we see the morality of Christianity diminish for many who claim Christianity in America today, who believe that homosexual and lesbian marriages are just the same as a heterosexual marriage before God are absolutely wrong. And we'll see that more next week. But if we reduce our idea of love to simple sexual acts, then we diminish love altogether. It is the laying of our life down for another, displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. One love is governed by selflessness. The other one is governed by selfishness. As Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary, I love what he says here. Let me read it to you. There are many professors who are not possessors. A Christian is not sinless, but he does sin less and less and less. The Christian is a king. And it is beneath his dignity to indulge in the practices of a lost world that is outside the kingdom of God. So Paul now defining what it means to glorify God properly through our conduct and our character. The first trait that we look at, of course, is to walk in love. The same love that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us. But not only love, but also the knowledge, the light that we have of God in verse 8. Notice what Paul writes here. For you were once darkness, not in darkness, you yourself were darkness. Notice how he words that there, it's important. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. We as believers in Jesus Christ, by His grace and His Spirit, our eyes have been opened to the reality of God. He has removed the blinders that we have had on our eyes that Satan has placed there to keep us wandering in the darkness aimlessly, going about life without a knowing and understanding of God. 
But once those blinders are removed and we have received the new life in Jesus Christ, we can now see things as they truly are. The Word of God all of a sudden begins to make sense to us. Where before, as the natural man, we didn't understand it at all, did we? So many have read the Bible and said, I don't have a clue. And they always start with revelation. You ever notice that? They always start with revelation. And it's just like, I don't get any of this, but this is pretty darn scary, you know. Well, it is, if you're a non-believer in Jesus Christ. It's the wrath of God poured out upon this world. But it only, again, exemplifies and amplifies for us the grace of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. When growing up, one of my favorite stories, I think maybe even one of the first books I ever read was the famous Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. Loved it. I loved that book. You know, when he gets everybody else to do his chores for him, I tried that in many different ways. And so my dad saw my, my interest in the, you know, Mark Twain's novel of Tom Sawyer and took me and my, our family down to Hannibal, Missouri, of course, where it's all where it all originated. And we looked at the various things, but one of the most fascinating uh, uh, experiences was the cave, the famous cave that Mark, uh, you know, Mark Twain wrote about in Tom Sawyer. And we got into the middle of that cave, and the tour guide was wonderful. He was pointing out all the different things, and my mom was thoroughly enjoying it, all up to the point where he said, look at the bats up there. And then she was like, I'm out of here, you know, I'm gone. You know, But as we got into the middle of the depth of that cave, he did something that none of us expected. He turned off the lights. Oh, my goodness. It was so dark, you could feel the darkness on you. Have you ever had one of those experiences? It was just heavy. It was so dark. You didn't know which way was which. You didn't know which way to go. There was no light at any direction to guide you in any way, shape, or form. People were bumping into each other, laughing, you know, and then I I felt this hand on my shoulder, and I'm like, I sure hope that's my dad, you know. And I'll never forget it. Well, you took Autumn there later when she grew up, and they did the same thing, and this time I was prepared, and I was the dad. But she didn't realize it. That experience sums up the experience of the individual apart from Christ in this world. They are groping aimlessly through this world. They are living in darkness, don't know which direction that they are going, and cannot see God for who God is, because they're blinded to the reality of God. Even though the creation itself screams of the existence of God, they suppress it. That the conscience of the individual reminding them of good and evil, they suppress it. But the revelation, the specific revelation of God himself, occurs when that blinder is lifted and we see things as they are and as soon as that tour guide turned on the light we all found our way and we weren't stumbling in the walls any longer we as christians have the light of god's word a lamp unto our feet a light unto our path and we need to walk accordingly we are not in darkness anymore we know better remember we talked about that last week As Paul said very clearly in chapter 4, for so you have learned Christ, he says. We know better, and therefore we should live accordingly. And notice what he says as he continues in verse 11. He says, Now have no fellowship 
that is unity, oneness, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, quoting Isaiah. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We as Christians need to have a very light touch upon the world. There was a time in my Christianity that I remembered many pastors sought to understand the world better by engaging and immersing themselves in worldly things. I always felt that that was very dangerous to do. Because, you know, we had this saying, and I don't know if people use it today, but garbage in, garbage out, you know. And of course, it took a toll on this pastor's life. I don't believe that we need to understand the world any better than we already do. I think that we need to dive deep into Jesus. Jesus interacted with this world, but he was never part of this world. Even though he made himself accessible and he showed compassion upon those who were around him and held accountable those religious leaders who should have been a light unto a lost world, but were not. But he walked in sinless perfection. We do not need to become like the world to reach the world. That's a very dangerous precedent, and it's a never-ending one. And it'll take you far from God in its endeavors. We need to become more like Jesus. And that means as we grow in righteousness, it means that we allow that righteousness that we display to be governed by humility, by love, not self-righteousness and pride. Because truly, we are no better than anyone else. We're saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, by His grace. You know, again, I like what one says, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find some food. But we are being sanctified. God is working in us as He draws us out of death into life, as He brings us from darkness to light. He is working in us. And as we are sanctified, yes, the world is going to be more and more unfamiliar as we go. And to the point now where I think that I am so confused by the world around me, I don't understand it anymore. There's no logic to it anymore. But that doesn't mean I have to do a deep dive into this world to understand this world. It just means that the work that God started in me, He is faithful to complete. And now I can see the world through the lens of His Scripture. The only true rock and light that we have is His Word. And we as Christians must be in it thoroughly. And again, notice what He does here. He tells us what is right when He talks about goodness, righteousness, and He talks about truth. Goodness, of course, is the manifestation of interest in the welfare of others. When he talks about righteousness, he's talking about the interest in walking in God's standards. One who is governed by the light of God needs to be seeking out the standards of God each and every day of his or her life that they may fulfill them and walk in them, fulfilling the will of God. When many people talk about the will of God, they always refer to it as this distant thing that is hidden from them and they need to perform in some way for God to ultimately reveal it to them. 
The beginning of the understanding of the will of God for the individual life begins with the saturation of your mind and heart with His Word. Finding out His will for you, for His church, through His Word. That's where it begins. Cultivating a deep and intimate relationship with God the Father through Christ, growing sensitive to the Spirit's leading in one's life and allowing Him to guide you with His eyes. But notice, not only is goodness and righteousness two characteristics of one who has been uh, exposed to the light and the light revealed too, but then truth also. We have a responsibility now more than ever to be truthful. We need to be the standard of truth. Now, the world is going to hate us for it. They're going to hate us for the godliness. They're going to hate us for the righteousness. They're going to hate us for the truth. Paul said it himself. Since I have told you, you know, the truth, have I now become your enemy? It's important that we understand that as we grow in Christ and as God sanctifies us, we're going to be less and less desirable and appealing to the world. And ultimately, as God promised, we'll be hated just like he is hated. I'm glad I can encourage you this morning. But it's the truth, isn't it? We can't seek to be liked by everyone because that often entails us conforming to the world to do so. The same with appeasement. We can't appease everyone around us because it often involves us conforming into the image that they want us to be. And now that we live in a culture that is leading everyone to this idea that our role as fellow humans is to affirm every behavior of someone else. That's not my role. I am not going to affirm something that God has called sin. It's destroying, it's decaying our society and certainly destroying the individual within it. No, we need to be truthful. We need to be responsible individuals. And as we walk in the light, the light itself will expose those unfruitful works of darkness. This is what Jesus said when, they, when he said they haven't come to repentance because they love the darkness more than the light. He preached righteousness and it exposed the darkness. He lived a God, a, you know, a God, a God living life and it exposed the darkness. He told the truth, and it exposed the lie. And they hated him for it. For we as Christians shouldn't even speak of those things that are done in secret. But in all things, we are to expose, we are to expose and are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light itself. And therefore, he says, awake, arise, and Christ will give you light. And then he concludes in verse 15, if you turn there with me. He says, then, see then that you walk circumspectly, for not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, but, which is dispensation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and 
spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. When he talks about walking circumspectly, it's twofold. Often I find that one of the two dimensions of this is, is emphasized over the other, but I think in doing so, we elevate one and we diminish the other when we really shouldn't because I think they walk hand in hand with one another. What is he saying here when he uses the term walk circumspectly? It's a word that maybe we aren't familiar with as much today as uh, they were maybe even a hundred years ago, but it means to walk wisely. It means to watch as you go, to look ahead, see what is coming before you. Maybe you remember that from driver's ed. You know, uh, the teacher saying to you, now make sure that you're not just looking in front of the car, but you're looking down the road a little bit, seeing and noticing what's coming before it comes. God helped me develop my faith starting in driver's ed in high school. They paired us up and then they sent us out with driving teachers, driver's edge instructors. And I got paired up with a guy named Tony. And Tony was probably about three and a half, four feet tall. Barely could he see over the steering wheel of the car. And the driving instructor would be next to him. And he was a, a football player, a big, a stocky guy, and he had, you know, he had one of those big necks, big shoulders, but he was very short. And so as we drove, you know, he could barely look over the dashboard of the car, let alone the hood of the car. And so I was driving by faith even before I was driving. And then when he needed to learn how to change lanes, I learned the fear of God and the fragility of life at that moment. Because as he turned the wheel, he also turned his head. <laughs> and I, am, I, I, you know, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a Christian at that time, so I'm looking at everything. I say, okay, do I got the rosary? Do I got this down? Do I got this down? You know, because I am going home. I, I swear that driver or the, the teacher, the instructor, you know, his hairline would recede every single time that we would go out. And he, it was impossible for him to see farther than just the end of the car. I, I don't know who or what we killed along the way. I used to read the paper the next day. Did anybody die? You know. But the importance of looking ahead, seeing what's coming, noticing, and then walking accordingly. The proper definition of this term is found in this. He says, pertaining to strict conformity. Conformity to what? God's standard. God's will. To a norm or standard involving both detail and completeness. It means to walk accurately, strictly. It means to apply the knowledge and allow it to form wisdom in one's life. So we need to know what the will of God is and we need to apply it as we look down the road, as we are going through our course in life, as we see things coming up that could stumble us and cause us to, to fall, and we need to avoid them. 
Why? Because he then goes on to, to mention the redeeming of the time, an idiom used in his time to do something with intensity and urgency. It's used in the absolute sense, and that means to take advantage of every moment that God has given us here on this earth for the purpose of glorifying Him. That's what Paul is saying to us. That if we're going to walk in love, and if we're going to walk in the light, and be contrary to the, to the world, we need to take a, 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 a stock of every single day that God gives us here and now. In this moment, at this time, how may I glorify God with the new life in which we are given? As we redeem the time, let us understand that the days are evil and that we will live contrary to those evil days. And therefore, he says, do not be unwise, but understand what is the will. I'm sorry, what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on, of course, and this is an illustration they would have been uh, familiar with. Do not be drunk with wine, which was a common occurrence in Ephesus and other Gentile areas, which is dissipa, 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 dissipation, but be filled with the, the Spirit. Dissipation means a behavior which shows a lack of concern or thought to the consequences of one's action. Meaning it's, it throws consequences to the wind. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do at the moment. Whatever I see fit, whatever pleases me, that's what I'm going to do. And Paul says that this type of action is foolishness. But we are to be filled with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Walk according to the Spirit. Not grieving the Spirit as we've talked about before. And walking in the Spirit will lead us to speak to one another. Verse 19, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What did he mean by that? That's a very interesting phrase to use. Well, believe it or not, the Jewish people saw the mo- one of the most encouraging aspects of the Old Testament to be the psalms. And so Paul is saying that we should encourage one another with these things. And allowing us to remember what God has done then, He is faithful to still do today. As God is always faithful to His promises to His people, the psalms in which He indicates here, or the hymns that were created, the spiritual songs all point to the direction of being encouraged knowing that God is faithful to His promises. But secondly, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, that is praising the Lord. One who walks in the Spirit always finds reason to praise God. Always finds reason to praise God. Whereas we walk in the flesh, we're all often, you know, challenged to find maybe something that we can praise God for because we are looking at our relationship with Him maybe in a selfish manner rather than a selfless manner. But in the Spirit, praising God for what He has done for us. And in verse 20, this is a verse that I really want us to consider this morning. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This last year has been challenging to say the least. And now we see that it's starting up all over again, don't we? 
it doesn't seem like it'll ever, ever end. But many have been worn by this last year. It's been a grind to them. And I have noticed the attitude of some Christians changing. And they're starting to grow bitter. They're starting to lose their gratefulness. And it's due to the fact that they seem to be focusing on what they don't have rather than what they do have. And it's hard to be thankful. It's hard to be grateful. It's hard to praise God when you are constantly fixated on those things that you don't have. Thinking that in some way, that if I only had that one thing, whatever it may be, you fill in the blank, everything will be all better again. But that's absolutely misleading, isn't it? And did you ever notice that once you move from that position of, of thankfulness and gratefulness into ingratitude or thinking that you're missing, and then all of a sudden you become a complainer? That complaining leads to frustration and bitterness within a person's heart. And yet God is saying just the opposite. God has promised us from the very beginning that he'll always provide everything that we need, doesn't he? But he doesn't promise that he'll provide everything that we want. And as a result, we often feel that those things that we don't have are going to bring us some kind of joy and satisfaction that we aren't currently experiencing. But I really believe that if we would turn our attention to those things that we do have in Christ, His Word, salvation, the promise of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, that He'll never leave us nor forsake us, that He impasses and imparts a peace to us that the world cannot understand, that surpasses all understanding of the individual himself. How about a joy that is inexplicable, meaning that it just, we can't explain it at times. How about knowing that we are never alone, that he is always with us? How about the fact that he has maybe provided a friend for us, a spouse for us, children for us? It's easy to get caught up in the things we don't have and become... uh, well, as my wife would affectionately say, crabby mad about it. But I think that we need to refocus our attention. And let's thank God for what we do have. And did you notice that that's the way Paul begins this whole entire letter? By indicating to us that we have been blessed with every blessing that is in heavenly places. You've got everything you need to govern and to uh, compass the world in which you currently live in Christ, in His Word. So let us be thankful. And notice what he says here in verse 20, and let us not, under, uh, let us not diminish the fact that we should always be thankful for all things, knowing that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I don't often understand what God is doing at any given moment. I don't understand how suffering can bring about the changes within me to conform me more into the image of God, but my heavenly Father does. 
And if my heavenly Father deems it necessary to bring me through a period of suffering, let's say, I know that it's for my betterment. Because God is not nearly as concerned with your temporal comfort as He is your eternal placement. God is concerned about allowing you to walk in and hear those words, Thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. But that takes faith. And the way that faith is developed is by knowing God through His Word thoroughly. And lastly, it's characterized by submitting to one another, serving one another in the fear of God. As Christ has come not to be served, but to serve, so we too should look to edify one another, to submit to one another, to serve one another as Christ has blessed us. As Warren Worsby concluded, he said, the last quality of a spirit-filled believer is being subject to one another. Those who are filled with the Spirit are not concerned for personal ambition or glory. Rather, they are willing to humble themselves and submit to, an, to others. Furthermore, they are to be subject due to their understanding of Jesus, who demonstrates true love by giving His very life for us. So if we are going to enjoy the total salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, we must walk totally in love, totally in light, and totally in wisdom.